Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Hi, this is Tim Williams. I'm your host for the Grimshaw Cities Podcast Series. My great guest today is Billy Giles Corty, Professor Emerita at RMIT University in Melbourne, and a global leader in researching the links between urban form and planning and public health and climate outcomes. It's a really topical. She has led groundbreaking international research published in the prestigious medical journal The Lancet, comparing planning systems and public outcomes, and not just researching the facts, but identified strategies to improve outcomes by improving cities. So a perfect guest for our Grimshaw Cities podcast series. So I'm delighted to have with me Billy Giles Corty, who I've been aware of and the great work that she and RMIT have been leading on, a globally important work, I can tell you, on city planning and public health, basically, and the link between the, link between the two. Um, and I can tell you that uh, many people who look at these things and they think, I wonder what causes public health outcomes. Sometimes they just don't look beyond their sort of silo or their nose. They say, well, I wonder if it's the way the city works and we transport people around and where, how they live and where they live, whether that has an impact on public health outcomes. And boy, do we know now that it does, partly because of the work of, of Billy and her great colleagues. So hello, Billy. Hello, Tim. Great to be here. I've jumped here. straight into it. <laughs> Without even <laughs> asking you, I've just slipped into it because I really, I've known you for a while and I've always been really interested in this work. And so I thought where we would start is to talk a bit about, we'll go back at some point, but I want to start with more or less here and now about the, the stuff that you've been doing over the last few years as part of the Lancet series, uh, the big international research you've been doing on city planning and public health. Could you say something about what this series is and, and some of the, we'll go into some of the findings then? Yes. I mean, for a long time, as you've articulated, that we've known that cities affect people's health. Uh, and our team's been focusing on the upstream determinants of that because, you know, if you focus about, you know, you say, well, people have got chronic disease and that's the downstream. But we wanted to know about the causes of the causes. And we call these the social determinants of health. And city planning is, a, I would regard as a social determinant of health. So we were interested in, do we have the policies in place to deliver healthy and sustainable cities? If we do or we don't, what are we actually delivering on the ground? What are the what are the intervention? What's the lived experience for people in cities? Do they have access to the amenities, to the environments that create a healthy and sustainable place to live? And we what we know is that, and we also looked at, and what impact would that have on people's active transport behaviour, for example, is one example. But we've done a lot of other work that's looked at you know, health impacts as well. So we'll unpack all this. But I, I now remember vividly that where I met you, you, were, you and I were on a panel in Liverpool in Western Sydney. And we were, uh, I was the first time I'd heard you speak. And I, I'd instinctively moved in the sort of same direction. But I'd not done the research. And I'm a historian, but I'm quite interested in you know, uh, how cities change over time and, and the inequalities in a city. So I was quite attuned to the conversation. But what I found in Western Sydney kicked off my my indignation as well as my interest, which is basically we were looking at, the, if you looked at the map of diabetes and obesity in Sydney, you'd be drawn to, you know, parts of Western Sydney. And then you have to say to yourself, you know, well, the, the lazy way of saying this is there's food issues and cultural issues and all that kind of stuff. But they also have unequal access to walkability. They they have unequal access to mass transit. Uh, the things that actually get you, the unequal access to canopy cover, you know, not enough places to walk to uh, from your home. So they walk a lot less. And that struck me as quite important in this story. I mean, I, I guess in the shorthand, that is very important in, in this story. It really is, actually. And that when we, we met in um, in in Western Sydney, that was when our first series came out and we identified the eight Ds that were our interventions that are needed to encourage people to walk more, to encourage people to use their car less, uh, to encourage people to cycle. 
And indeed, what we find is, and, and the evidence has grown much more over time, is all the things that you just mentioned, whether people have a tree canopy, that wasn't as in our work, that's Thomas Astle's work and Zhao Shi Feng's work, but they show that tree canopy is really associated with heart health outcomes, you know, um, chronic disease, uh, cardiometabolic risk factors, dementia even. Um, whether people can have the opportunity for walk, that walking, that's something that we've done. If you live in a walkable environment, it's pretty obvious you're more likely to walk, more likely to cycle, more likely to use public transport and less likely to drive. So that is not only good for human health, it's also good for planetary health. And that's been a big focus on our more recent work is that what we're interested in now, we've come up with the, the 11Ds um, and that's because we're not only concerned for you know, human health, but also ecosystem health and planetary health, because actually what happens to the planet, what happens to the ecosystem is fundamentally going to affect human health. So, you know, these are all, everything's in, it, it, it's a system. So everything you do in one part of the system affects other parts and we are directly affected by that. So yeah, it's, it's a really, um, it's great that people are starting to listen now. Well, it's interesting because uh, the way into it, I think, for some people has come from the climate discussion, actually. Um, you know, a group of people that didn't really, you know, I was going to say care about, uh, you know, the inequalities in Sydney have discovered the, syn the synergy between having a kind of unwalkable environment based on emissions and cars and a carbon economy, if you like, and the health implications of all that have come at it from that angle and realised there's a strong people inequality and public health story and i think also uh and again i'm hugely jumping ahead because i was this is like at the end you know but the uh but i was gonna say the uh it struck me recently that quite a lot of people who have um been in my other world my other world is like urban regeneration economic development you know transport systems and, and sort of not people stuff but like big infrastructure stuff. they've not not everybody has caught on to the fact that uh investors in future partly because of their esg obligations will be looking at whether you know, that big road worsens the health impact uh, of a city rather than, you know, seems to make it work more efficiently, i.e. this agenda of health and well-being driven outcomes is, is, is beginning to have a big impact on decision making for infrastructure, it seems to me. I, mean, I think what we've done is that we've, ex you know, all those negative externalities from building the bigger yeah. road have just been ignored. Um, just to give you a sense of it, um, uh, chronic disease costs around $38 billion a year, and a large proportion of that is preventable. When we say it's preventable, it's people having um, chronic diseases um, before 70. Um, you know, you expect as you get age that you might have it, but there's a lot of people who die prematurely, uh, and that has a big impact on the economy, both in terms of the productivity of our cities, of our you know, our, our economy, but also in terms of the, you know, this personal effect, but also the effect on the, on the direct impact of the cost of the health system. So I think there's, and what we've ignored is the negative externalities of, of the way we build cities, because we just look at the, oh, well, it's going to make it quicker for people to get across the city. It's going to you know, be eight minutes quicker. Oh, that's good. But forget that all the other, you know, the air pollution, the air quality, the noise, um, all the other negative things that could come from the way we're building our city. And, and simple things like the barrier effect of building a big road separating communities so they can't walk across them anymore. People, these are apparently simple things have massive consequences on health and well-being, but also community vitality and all sorts of things. So I think it's a really better moment has arisen where you, we can have these conversations now. Like I have to say, partly in response to the work of people like you do, put some science uh, into all this. We can't ignore anymore the negative externalities discussion. I think that's a really important point and, you know, we'll obviously appeal to kind of proper economists, you know, but essentially we've been letting people get away with murder in terms of our assessment of how successful uh, an infrastructure project is or what its purpose is. You know, it, could, it seems to do this job, like a narrowly siloed job of getting people from A to B, but it has all these negative consequences which are never counted into. You know, I, I, I've, you know, I've been railing against some big rail, road projects in Sydney, partly because I didn't think their true costs were being counted into the equation. So I, I feel as though uh, all this work you, people like you've been doing is, and the kind of, COP26, 27 or whatever is the emphasis on decarbonisation is beginning to come together in a kind of um, 
critique that people can't ignore in government anymore, I think. I think that's a really good point, but I do think that people are a little bit forgetful because I've just seen the latest narrative that we're hearing that, you know, urban sprawl is not a dirty word. Um, I would say it is a dirty word. It's good for, it's bad for the individuals who live there. They have no amenity. So we're happy to build neighbourhoods without all the basic amenities, the local school, the shops and services, the GP surgeries. We wouldn't dream of building a community without water and sanitation. But somehow in terms of that social infrastructure, we're happy to do it. And when you build really low-density neighbourhoods uh, where there's not enough people, what it means is that there's not enough people to make it viable, to make shops and services, public transport viable. I mean, you can't, there's not enough people to service those things. So people have to drive everywhere. And that driving is both bad for them because it's better to walk, cycle, use public transport, but it's also bad for the environment. So with the greater concerns around climate change, it's, you know, if we just, if we build places that are just designed for driving, it's it's bad for people and it's bad for the planet as well. So this is very important. You raise a point, though, that there's a kind of uh, inflection point coming, I think, in the discussion where um, a lot of people are panicking about, I mean, sort of understandably panicking about the housing situation. I, I'm sort of a housing nerd and I'm here to tell them that it that it's not a simple supply problem thing in Australian cities particularly, but they're very attracted, some of the new government people, to the idea that, you know, like a bunch of namby-pambies have been stopping development over here and that, that therefore it's just let sprawl, sprawl is a good thing because it's only kind of, you know, greenies that complain about sprawl, whereas in fact you're mainstreaming the discussion around absolute core outcomes for human beings from the type of city that we've been building. And I think that we, we, you know, do no harm is the Hippocratic Oath, and we've been doing quite a lot of harm. So I think, for me, this is quite an important point, you know, as to whether the, the sort of panic that there is around housing numbers triumphs again over good city making. I, I've got, I have a compromise. I don't know if this is a real compromise. This is my Williams-esque attempt at compromise. I... I I, I, my personal joke about myself, by the way, is that I, I'm the Dr. Doolittle of urban regeneration. I can talk to the animals. You know? right? So essentially, I like to try and bring people together. However, will they come together around the idea if you're going to do urban, uh, if you're going to do lower density development anywhere, it should be around kind of town centre models rather than huge, just sole housing estate. The most soulless phrase in the English language must be housing estate, of which we seem to be fond of building them without any amenity, connectivity, jobs, public transport, walkability, anything. And I'm rather hoping, I don't know if there is, that there is a kind of new town development version of this, which basically says you build proper communities that you can do all that around rather than what we are doing. But maybe maybe not. And I do think you're you're right that the idea that we should validate sprawl, given its health and environmental consequences, is a nonsense, really. But we are at a danger point in this discussion, I think. There's nothing wrong with building affordable housing, but that affordable housing, if it's not linked by public transport, walking and cycling infrastructure to everything that you need for daily living, that is not affordable living. That is affordable housing. And what it means is that people in those fringe have to run two or three cars, and that is not solving. That's bad for them. It's bad for the environment. Um, it's bad for congestion. It's inefficient in our cities. We see many of these outer suburban areas where you know, the traffic hazards are, or the traffic congestion is really, really bad because of they're not well designed. So I think we, if we are going to be building housing on the fringe of our cities, then it needs to be good design, good medium density shops and services around, as you say, around a transport hub so that people have the option and I think we need to be building more cycling infrastructure into places. So if around all the train stations, even in the outer suburban areas, we gave people the option of of uh, riding their bikes you know, safely to the train station, what's wrong with that? I mean, I think people, they deserve, people on the fringe deserve to have that that opportunity because it means that they could don't have to leave, leave their car sitting at the train stations all day. So I think that we could actually be doing things so much better so if we are going to be building so-called affordable housing on the fringe, let's make sure it's also affordable living on the fringe by providing people with the alternative to walk, cycle, use public transport rather than to have to drive everywhere.
essentially we need places rather than just housing and they need to have all the facets you talk about and so i might compromise but i don't know if we're going to do it you see is you've got your inner city and then you've got your suburbia is there a kind of as i call it superbia which is a kind of you know a sustainable tightened up version of this which has all the amenities you talk about so we end up with a a series of compact towns and cities rather than just the sprawl that we have as a kind of compromise with good public transport links between them i think that's doable and it's hugely preferable to what we seem to be doing. Oh, let me just, just add to that, though. It's really creating a city of villages. You know, the city, the, you know, the inner city is great, you know, being designed around villages. And I think that's what the potential is. Out on the burbs, we could be doing villages so that, you know, you actually, as you say, doing it around a town centre and making it a proper place rather than separation of land uses. I think we've got way, when we talk about mixed use, we don't do mixed use properly. We don't have the mixed of land uses throughout these neighbourhoods. We have the big box shopping centres. And I think that is a disastrous thing for those outer suburban areas is the big box, big box shops of all types. So everyone has to drive there. And I think that's what we need to get away from. And it's a model that we've really got locked into. It's a very American-style model, but it's not a good model for the future of the planet. No, and I agree. And I think we know we agree it's not a good model for, for the future of communities. And I, I think that's really important. I think The other thing I think about that, by the way, a specific Australian, possibly American part of the story, is that when we used to have migrants come into Australia 50, 60 years ago, they used to go to inner-city, higher-density areas where there were kind of community connections, job connections, amenities. And now they kind of been pushed out to the far fringes of cities, low density development, where actually this is not necessarily a great integrating kind of method model of building a city, right? So I think there's a lot that's gone wrong. I think the good news is that with the things like the reinvention, uh we're seeing internationally the reinvention of the shopping mall coming as they lose retail focus. There's an opportunity for them to become town centres. Uh, actually, but we need to really have the ambition to do this. And on this last point, the uh, that I think that um, I, I've been very critical of what's been going on in Western Sydney. For those people that don't know internationally, listening to this, it's the fastest growing part of the city. It's a, it's it's a quite a big migrant community now, and it's got low density housing historically, long way from good jobs and all this kind of stuff. And that the thing I think has gone wrong, even since. We've thought about this, but we still haven't delivered on the ground. This is that the that if you look at a draw lines halfway through Sydney, north south, the east bit, historically older, has got twenty to thirty historic town centres already there, and that which development has coalesced around and given you kind of walkable precincts. You go west of that line, and even and the new developments are not creating new centres; they're just creating housing, and that is catastrophic. So. So uh, whatever happens in our rush to build more housing, let's build better places is, is where we're at. You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City Series. The Lancet Series, I want to talk about this because it's a great international platform. You know, the Lancet, the most prestigious, I guess, health magazine on the planet. How did you get involved with them in the first place? And what's the difference between Series 1 and Series 2 of the Lancet Series? <laughs> so series one was um yeah the lancet published that uh it was led by mark stevenson with jim salas from university of california and myself um and where we, we we set up the premise about why a journal which um, lancet the lancet is a, really a medical journal and so we wanted to lay out why city planning is so important for human health. Um, we had three papers in the series uh, and what we talked about was we put the rationale, uh, which was the paper that I led. Mark led, well, if we had to change cities, you know, how do we change the sort of cycling infrastructure? What would be the health impact of changing the infrastructure? And then Jim Sellers led a paper which was about, or well, how do we actually do that? What do we need to do? How do we translate what we already know into policy and practice? And we gave some examples of that. So that was series one. And in the series one, we outlined the eight Ds of what we needed, the eight interventions that were needed to the eight policies um, we, we talked about the need for horizontal integration of policy and vertical integration between different levels of government, uh, the private sector and the community to 
make it all happen because you need to have the integration across all the different government departments and also between different levels of government, the private sector and the community to make it happen um, for the interventions. And we, we, we identified eight interventions, um, regional interventions, which were about you know, destination accessibility, demand management. You know, we keep on talking about the need to reduce driving, but we still provide lots of parking. Uh, and, and when any apartments are built without parking, there's a furor. Um, because if, you know, even if it's right next to public transport, people still think there needs to be lots of parking. You know, the, when we have shopping centres, we have parking requirements. And really what we want to try to do is actually reduce demand for driving, particularly around residential areas. So, uh, and then we had the urban design uh, features that were important. So in the second series, what we proposed in the first series is that what we needed to be doing is benchmarking and monitoring our cities. Uh, that was really our argument is that this is urgent, it needs to be done, and what we need to set, have a set, a set of indicators that we can use to benchmark and monitor our cities. And um, the Lancet was very, the editorial team were very, they pushed us hard and said that we want, we don't want you to pussyfoot around as academics often do, you know, with all the caveats. They said, we want you to come out with a firm statement about what's required, which was not often that you get asked to do that by a journal. Anyway, so that's what we did. What we did in the second series, well, it was all very well to say we needed to have these indicators, um, but we actually had to demonstrate that it was possible to do that. A set of comparable indicators that we could allow us that were that would allow us to benchmark and monitor cities. So first of all, we did some work in Australia. So we did the national livability study. So we did we first off started off in Melbourne policy analysis, creating indicators, seeing whether they're associated with health. Then we went national. So we, we did the national livability study and now we've got 21 cities uh, where we have livability indicators, uh, which are now being um, disseminated through the Australian Urban Observatory. And so we could we show that we could do it in the Australian context. And so we, what we did was we uh, we scaled up that work to go global. I went to a conference in 2018 and started to invite people to say, well, would you like to join us to see if we can do a proof of concept that it's possible to take these indicators that we have included in the first Lancet series and to try and develop those and create them for cities globally. So we recruited um, 25 cities uh, in 19 countries and six continents. And we went about trying to, to do that. We did a set of policy indicators. So we did policy analysis. We asked the question, do we have the policies in place to deliver healthy and sustainable cities? And then we did spatial indicators to say, well, what's the lived experience for people living in cities? And so to show what it looked like in those cities um, in terms of the distribution, you know, are there winners and losers in cities and where are those winners and losers? And then we went to, well, uh, what's the sort of, what's this, and, you know, one of the big challenges is for planners and uh, urban designers is what are the metrics that we need? And, and I've been really conscious of that, trying to come up with, use, use our research to come up with, you know, how much density, how close to parks need to be, how close to public transport need to be. So we actually started to to, to, to test some of that, that work was led, led by Esther Serin. And then my paper in the series was um, about where to next um, and making the point that not only do we need to be thinking about human health, but we have a climate emergency. We need to be thinking about um, ecosystem health and planetary health. And we've now got the 11 Ds and even more indicators. So now we've started the Thousand City Challenge where we're trying to do this in a thousand cities. And uh, Melanie Lowe, uh, one of the team members, she's leading work on developing some of the resilience indicators. And what our plan is not just to, you know, to develop, um, Carl Higgs is doing this, but not only to develop, to say this is what we need to do, but develop the tools that will allow cities to replicate what we've done. And that's what the Thousand City Challenge is about, is that we've created through the first series, been fine-tuned fine now through Carl Higgs's works and his team um, to create tools that cities can use to create these indicators. So, you know, it's all very well to say it, but we wanted to enable cities to do it, uh, and that's what we're doing now. I think we've got over 300 cities that are already really? signed up. We're very keen to get 300? No, I didn't know. I, did, yeah. I didn't know about the 1,000 cities. Yeah. I, need to yeah. get, I need to get out more, you know. Uh, this is 1,000 cities. 
Very exciting. No, it's very exciting. So, um, but, you know, obviously we want to do, we need more cities to be involved and we want not just, you know, cities in obviously Australia or in the, in the, in the West. What we want is to try and get yeah. cities in Africa and we are starting to get cities in South America. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to, and we've got cities in China joined. Um, so it's really quite exciting. It's, you know, a huge collaboration. We, we've worked out that people in 30 countries are listening to this Grimshaw City's podcasting, so so we so we can put a call out, you know. Uh, now, so we'll do that. Uh, well, I think it's I think it's phenomenal. The um, I like the, the you know the, there's a necessary science to being you know objective academic work, and that's important. And that's you describe what is happening, and then you take a view of what ought to be happening to achieve certain uh, public benefit outcomes, as it were. And I think that's an entirely important part. Of it. So it, it turns your your work into a good evidence base to do something different and, and good, right? Yeah. I think what was really important about that study is that we found that there's lots of aspiration in cities to develop healthy and sustainable cities. So there's no question that people think this is important. What we found is there's a gap between what they aspire to do and the policy framework in place to deliver those cities on the ground. And then when you look at on the ground, you see incredible inequities in the way amenities or, you know, cities are being planned. So that, you know, there definitely are winners and losers in cities, particularly the worst cities, of course, were North America, Australia. Uh, we came out to be way, way uh, the worst compared to when we compare ourselves globally, as opposed to European cities, for example. Um, but we didn't measure things like air quality and noise. And, and like, for example, Barcelona will come out very good. And the built form is fantastic in terms of, you know, walkability and all that sort of thing. But it doesn't have much green space. We have a, you know, a changing climate and it's getting much hotter as we've just seen the last summer. But in addition to that, they because they haven't controlled the traffic or they're starting to now with their superblocks, people are exposed to air pollution and noise. And so we haven't measured those. They're the sorts of things that we need to add to our framework to be able to, you know, we, we did a proof of concept with our, our second series. It was published in Lancet Global Health. And what we want to do now is, you know, add to it, add all these additional indicators that tell you about the health of a city in terms of, you know, the potential to promote health and well-being. I, I've been in the market for some time for the idea that Barcelona is not perfect, and that the uh, that uh, I, I'm, I'm, it's an amusing way of saying essentially that it's great at some things but not at other things, and that uh, there's a kind of idea that. We should do in my again my background urban renewal urban regeneration is that we should do a Barcelona you know the and yeah well it's a very unique kind of place and it's still got some problems it it brings me to an interesting point though before we go to the I want to talk about believe it or not I want to I'm going to go into the 15 minute city a bit because I think there's a there's been a kind of tactical error around this because I think it's a good idea uh, but essentially I'm not sure it's been properly explained or sold really but we'll come back to that i was talking about barcelona when i went there recently about six months ago and uh, in their winter and there was just every almost every single road has been dug up in order to, to do the kind of super block thing you know there was like a massive like change coming to the way that cars circulate and all it hasn't all it hasn't all happened yet but it is about to happen and it, it does raise this thing about um how you, you achieve consensus and to get change because um, some of it in Barcelona is slightly more authoritarian than people would expect of a kind of left of centre kind of uh, mayoralty. You know, they, they, they introduced some change about four or five years ago overnight without asking people. Then I think quite cleverly when they fought back, they, they, they moved a little bit back towards the people, but essentially still got their, their progressive idea over the line. But it does raise this whole issue of, you know, how you get, consent and support for change um and I, i'm putting it out there a moment because i want to come back to the 15 minute city one thing i didn't ask you is who who came out of the um benchmarking very very well i think you just put the nail on the head that every city has strengths and weaknesses and we try not to rank cities some people really like that and some people but we, we try not to, although we have got indicators that allow you to compare each city with itself, but we haven't actually gone through and created a, a list to say, well, this is the best. We haven't done what the, you know, the, um, the uh, 
economic livability indicator. We haven't done that quite deliberately, but because every every city does have strengths and weaknesses, and so uh, the, in the case of Barcelona, of course, as I mentioned, it's got great built form, but it doesn't have enough green space, and it also has this air pollution and noise issues. Uh, and you're right about that, but I, that's why I think leadership is so critical. You know, like often when things are proposed, people don't like the idea of it and they're fearful of change and that's why you have to have courageous leadership to actually to champion it and and also but then to deliver um, my biggest fear for Australia is that we do need to you know have densification across our cities but if we don't get that right if we keep on building these one-bedroom apartments without thinking about families living there if we don't do you know and are too high all of that sort of thing you can see why the community pushes back so it really needs to be done well density done well rather than what i call dreadful density livable melbourne has loads of very bad uh kind of urban high density development i mean in fact by the way um i don't know if inadvertently your research blew out of the water the idea that uh, that uh, melbourne is the most livable city on the planet i never understood quite because I like. I think they they do mean the kind of inner bit, which is incredible, incredible, walkable, beautiful kind of thing. And then you go out into the suburbs, and it's just like any other uh, Australian city. Or whatever. Yeah, I think I think it's delusional to think that our strength. I mean, when you look at ourselves, and when you map our, when you map the cities and look at um, people's spatial access to amenity, which we have done, you see that it's a nonsense to focus on. Um, you know, Melbourne or Sydney being the most liberal. Yeah, I mean, the inner city, but who lives in the inner city? It's a very small number of people compared to the people who are living on the fringe. Um, so I think what we have to be thinking about is how do we make our outer suburban areas livable, um, equitable, fair for people who live there? And if you're so selfish that you don't, you're not interested in fairness, at least think about the economic impacts of you know, traffic congestion, productivity, air pollution, what impact that has on all of us. I think we have to you know, really look at ourselves and think we, we want to create a, a better outer suburban area as well. See, this is fascinating for me because I think this is this where, it, this where it edges into your, which I do want you to talk about, which is your call to the future stuff at the, the you know, because you, as you say, and you wrote that, that, that stuff, I think. But my way into it will be... Um, in, a, in Australia, but I think I suspect in America as well, uh, a bit in the UK, there's been a politics around suburbia and, and sprawl, i.e. I, I, uh, I remember the only time I was ever really told off in public by one of the premiers of this state uh, back in the day, back in 2015, was when I used the word sprawl to describe Sydney. And he, he felt, A, he didn't think it was a correct word, and B, he didn't think it was a bad thing, right? So um, I, essentially there's a kind of... Um, feeling <clears throat> that we're all being a bit snooty and a bit snobby about suburban living and we're not i think we're basically saying it's got many virtues in terms i was talking to uh alex krieg who carrie krieg who's the uh just written this book about the city on on the hill and he's a you know professor at uh harvard uh, uh planning and urban design he's brilliant you know and we were both agreeing that we didn't like some of the easy dismissal of suburbs by urbanists who you know who need to get out more themselves how because it's about a thing that is very difficult to replicate in the in the city which is about independence and it's about ownership and all that kind of stuff however all the downsides that we've talked about so far are very real in that model and they need to be addressed or resolved right so so i think you and i w would agree violently that that there is a kind of uh, let me let me finish this point and come back in and attack me for not for not agreeing with me you know the, uh, but I think this the um, there are some virtues in this kind of um, what you can get out of suburbia to some degree. However, when you add in, as you said earlier on, all the downsides which are never counted in properly, it's a much more complex situation, and we have to do better than that. And I think my own positive compromise is: can we create in one, make sure that we we do we build good inner city, you know, uh, dense stuff around stations let's do that let's also if we can retrofit some of the middle ring areas that are lower density suburbs but are not that they're not quite like out on the fringes but they can still do with a bit more public transport tightening up more amenities all that stuff and then when we do new greenfield developments they should be on bloody great principles around the stuff that we've talked about the compact 
city stuff. So I think we probably agree with 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 all that. It's just all I was saying was that there's a a, a, po- a politics around positive around suburbs and suburbia that it's not difficult. It's not easy to dismiss. I think or all that. Anyway, sorry, that's me. I, I think um, what we've been doing is looking at the twenty minute neighbourhood, which is not. Um, really a 20-minute neighbourhood. It's a 10-minute yeah. neighbourhood, really. It's whether it's because it's based on people being able to walk to something for 10 minutes and be back in 10 minutes. So it's actually a, almost like a 10-minute neighbourhood. Um, and we've been looking at, well, the whole idea of, and I love the idea of it because I think a big driver for me is the inequity that comes when you live out in those fringes. You think about children living on the fringe without any amenity that have to be driven everywhere by their parents and their parents are working, spending hours traveling and then not home. That is not good for community. And it's not, and it costs them a lot of money to live out there anyway, because as I said before, it's not affordable living. It's just affordable housing because they have to spend so much money on driving. Um, but what we did with the 20-minute neighborhood work was we tried to work out, well, if you have to have the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker and all the sorts of destinations nearby that make a place walkable and in the 20-minute neighbourhood as articulated by the Victorian government, it's got all the sorts of the hallmarks, they call it the hallmarks of a 20-minute neighbourhood. So, you know, people should have access to schools and lifelong education, so schools and high schools and um, childcare and kindergartens and public open space and GP surgery and health services and community services. Well, what we did was we looked at working with our our government colleagues, actually. So we worked in partnership with um, our colleagues that we work with, our partners, and looked at, well, you know, if you want to deliver all of those things, each one of those different types of things, uh, destinations or amenities, has a different population catchment. So if they all have a different population catchment, like a high school has a bigger population than a primary school, for example. And so if one, if you want them to be within a close distance so people can uh, walk or walk because it's both based on walking, how would they be spatially located? So if they have to be within 800 metres. And if you want to achieve that, then what's the levels of density that it would take to deliver that? Okay, so if you have to have all those amenities within a walkable catchment, what would be the densities that you need to so that people can actually get them? And then I worked out, which is the other side of it, and what would be the cost? So if you say, okay, well, we want to build suburban straw, we want to do it 15 dwellings per hectare. Okay, build it 15 dwellings per hectare. And if people are meant to have the amenity, which I think from an equity point of view should be a focus, why should we build neighbourhoods without with people don't have access to things? It's just not fair. Well, I, I like this a lot. I like this a lot, right? Yes. Yeah, so what we did was we walked out, we worked out then, well, what would be the cost? If you're going to build it 15 dwellings per hectare, how much would that cost? $1.6 billion we worked out. If you build it 30 dwellings per hectare, it's going to cost $800 million to be able to deliver to, I think it's 60,000 people, um, they would get have access to everything. So I think, you know, okay, we, you know, I think that's a sort of, uh, to me, um, when we're talking about, you know, 30 or 35 dwellings per hectare, that is not dense. That Actually, that's the sort of levels of density you see in Fitzroy or I guess probably Petersham or places like that, which people want to live there. And also people forget, I think I did a study once that showed that there were in Paddington in, in, in the centre of Sydney, it was 90 homes per hectare. These sort of much de- much beloved things are, are are four times, you know, the suburban density or whatever. You're, but, but I like the way that you pitch the story, you see, because I think this is what has slightly gone wrong with a 50-minute city thing. You should start with the amenity-rich outcome. That's why we want it. People pay for the amenity, and nobody would doubt the idea. Oh, yeah, well, of course. I want to, you know, so are you selling me a notion that I can walk to my local school? Like, yeah, that, that is so much better the, 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 the way to put the argument. But you're right, it then leads to a sort of public sector decision and cost, which is different from the lower density one, which is interesting. So there's a coordination thing. I want to come to this, actually. There's a coordination thing. And then we have private sector business models. So I, I'm very interested now, the last bit as we of this comment, which has been brilliant and illuminating, and I'm going to direct people to all your work right so this is this is great and the narrative is really good and your last point though is critical right which is the amenity you start with the amenity outcomes that you wish to create what's the underpinning of that and then how do you deliver it right so part of the challenge i think uh that we're all gonna have to transcend 
is that we've had certain private sector business models of doing stuff, and we've had certain government siloed behaviour, uh, which has been been very unhelpful. So it's a bit of both, right? It's a, it's not just the private sector problem at all. And part of the NIMBYism thing isn't just about people objecting to uh, a big part of the NIMBYism thing is not about them objecting to architecture. It's about them objecting to the pressure on services and the kind of the amenity problem and the place problems that can arise. These are legitimate concerns because we have been building some rubbish. Uh, in, in, so I, th I think for me, the, uh, the amenity-rich pathway uh, is the way to go. And I think it then just leads to what, what's the planning system doing about insisting not on subdivisions and, you know, but on place-based place kind of planning, which has a town centre at the heart of it. That's critical. And then how do we bring, make sure that there's public sector alignment around when the schools come, when the, when the hospitals come and all that kind of stuff. And at the other side is the private sector needs to find ways of making money, not just from houses in paddocks. You know, so, I, I, you know, what I mean, there's a kind of new business models required coming into this. who are really interested in the amenity side of it because they can make money from that model. So there's a lot to ask, but it's the right way to go, I think. I agree. I mean, I completely agree. I don't think it's fair just because it suits us to make money to build lots of houses on the fringe without amenity. That is not fair. It's not fair to children who live there. It's not fair for their, their left home. They you know, can't get to things, have to be driven everywhere. It's just wrong on every level. And it's bad for people and it's bad for the planet. It's also bad for productivity. People under, underestimate this. The, 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 one of the reasons why, but one of the reasons why, um, I always try to explain to people that uh, a road and a rail system don't do the same things for placemaking. And they don't do the same things for economic activity because the roads disperse development and the rails agglomerate development and agglomeration is the heart of economic productivity. So basically, we've been creating the wrong kind of city in terms of human impact and the wrong kind of city in terms of productivity. Because if you look at international examples of productivity, Australian cities are way behind. And it's partly because, in my view, of the urban form not lending itself to to um, kind of agglomeration and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, that's my interest. There was an interesting um, little report that came up from Chris Leinenberger in the the US, and he and he worked out that I mean I think it's one point three percent of the land mass in the US is walkable, uh, and it produces twenty percent of the GDP because that's where all you know. So I think you know it. It's something to consider, you know, like I think it's not efficient to be building as we are. Um, and, you know, people get upset. They think, oh, you're just trying to take away people's backyard. Um, you know, I think we have to have good public open space. I think we have to deliver. I'm not I'm not suggesting really high density. And I think people, you know, deserve to have a little out. I don't think we should be building over the whole block. I think we should be keeping little gardens in people's houses um, so that people can have gardens. But at, at 25 or 30 dwellings per hectare, that is not high density. That is very low density. By global standards, it's and, – and you can have a little garden in those – on those old, um, you know, in what we used to build, it was very – especially if you do diversity of housing. I think we've got into this idea of doing monocultures of one type of housing type and what you actually have to have is diversity. So some people would live in a, you know, medium-sense – apartments, some people would live in a cottage lot, some would live in a townhouse, some people would live in just a suburban house. So, you know, there's a mix of densities that would would cater for different price points and also different types of stage of life. I, I just think it's just getting back to a more traditional way of doing things. Oh, of course, because but, but, but for the reasons that you gave, you know, the public health outcomes, the community outcomes, the economic outcomes, it just happened to be better, you know, sort of. So I think there's uh, no, and of the course. sustainability outcomes. But, I mean, to me, it's a vital thing. Yeah, and I, but that's why I like your framing of it. You see, because when you start with density, which is the, one of the another depressing word in the English language, apart from housing estate, you know, density. Whoever, whoever was attracted by the notion of density, right? So I think that the attraction, the, the notion of here's the amenities that you've always sought for your life, and they can only be attained in certain sort of built forms and certain structural approaches. That's that's the proposition, it seems to me. It's an outcomes-led approach rather than a kind of inputs thing around high density. And I you know, high density is just a developer's game. It's just it's completely it's not what people 
want. They want great places to live in. And I think we, we, we are saying to them, you're saying to them, you can only have those under certain conditions. I, I think also your point about 30, 35, 40, th that medium density thing is the sweet spot. And again, you can still have areas which are 10, 10 homes per hectare and others that are 80, 90 or whatever it is. But, but there is a, a medium, a happy medium, which we're not achieving. Uh, and I completely agree with you. I think this, as we go towards the end, I could always have a second conversation with you about all this kind of stuff, right? Is um, your clarion call, your, your uh, you know, so what are the four, three or four things or whatever that you want to see us really focus on as cities and in order to push towards this this future? What, what are the things you think are essential? I think we need to have, um, create an authorising environment where there is actually truly integrated planning you know, I think we just don't do integrated planning. You know, Department of Education's doing one thing, Department of Transport's doing something else, Department of Planning's doing something else. We really do need integrated planning because we need the early delivery of in, of infrastructure, and we need to have you know we need to be doing the integrated planning across government, but we also need that vertical integration. So I think we need to be working in a different way to deliver the outcomes that we say that we need. So I think that's one thing I think is really critical. We need to be focusing on implementation. What we found, we, we, we did many years ago, we did an evaluation of the West Australian government's uh, livable neighbourhood guidelines. Uh, and we found that the policy didn't work. Um, do you know why it didn't work? Because, because it wasn't implemented. <laughs> it's simple. It wasn't that the policy didn't work. It was the policy wasn't fully implemented. Uh, we only evaluated up to 10 years, so we did a 10-year longitudinal study. It really probably needed 20 years, um, but nevertheless, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't that it didn't work. It wasn't fully implemented. So, what one of my Paula Hooper was uh, one of my students at the time. What she did is, well, what if it was delivered? And what she found that for every temp. So, what she did was she compiled all the data. So, we we had the livable neighbourhoods and we had the conventionals, and we found that it wasn't much different between them. But then what we did was we put all the data together and said, well, if you had the things that the policy is trying to achieve, do you have a better result? And we found that for every 10% increase in implementation, like the odds of people walking increased by 53%, I think it was. Mental health uh, problems went down by about 8%. For every 10% increase in implementation, sense of community increased, um, safety, people's fear of crime decreased. So the policy levers were absolutely right. It's just that the policy wasn't implemented. And I think that's a critical thing now. Let's don't, when I hear that, you know, people are calling for, you know, don't, uh, urban sprawl is not a dirty word. Let's do the 20 minute neighborhood and get, and yeah. actually implement it and really try hard to do the things it's trying to do, to make walkable environments, to give people access to amenity. And the only pathway to doing that is by working together and actually being committed. I think one of the things I see is this, you know, leapfrog development, you know, the not finishing a neighbourhood, you know, you sell a bit of land over here and a bit of land over there, and it's not sort of sequence development in terms of amenity. I just think if you're going to build in an out of sequence, then you should be paying for the amenity because I don't think it's fair that people live in these new neighbourhoods without amenities. So to me, that you know, sequence planning is really vital to be able to ensure that people have access to it. So, and I would really like to see, and it's exciting actually, I'm involved in um, Future of Fremantle. It's a 260. Yes, 260 hectare development that's going to take place when they move the port from Fremantle down to Kwinana. And so there's all the planning's going ahead at the moment. And the community has wanted, there's been community consultations, I'm getting involved in it. Wellbeing, equity, prosperity and resilience are all the sort of goals. And then they have foundation principles. And in terms of health, one of the foundation principles is to leave a legacy uh, of a healthy and sustainable environment and, and to produce good health. I can't remember the exact words, but it's about, essentially it's saying that they want to leave a legacy that uh, promotes health for both the people and for the place. And to me, that's really what we should be aiming to do. I think you said it before, it's my, you know, people who build cities should sign the Hippocratic Oath, first do no yeah. harm. It's such yeah. a responsibility. You're laying down the foundations for generations to come. And we can't afford for people to be doing that badly at the moment. We need to have a an absolute commitment and to and to celebrate the people who are doing good jobs and 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 really trying to make a difference and getting behind them to actually make, enable them to do this, do so. 
So I think it's a brilliant way to end your contribution. I'm just going to, apart from saying thank you for what was a fantastic conversation, a really deep and rich and still very accessible and great fun, and everybody can learn from it, and I'm sure you're going to get great responses to it. There was uh, two things I wanted to say. One was unscientific, but to do with... And I, I'm a strong believer that people know a great place when they see it and that we don't need to send them to university to point this out. And people know, have always known what a great place was. And they used to find ways of building them, but but they always knew. And my, my, my mother is a good case in point. My mother, I lived in a mining village where split in half between the 1910s Paddington-style terraces, you know, sort of uh, traditional British terraces, which are quite small, uh, small gardens, uh, but quite intense and connected to each other. You know, in streets there were, you know, you'd have 300 homes in a street, you know, it was kind of very medium density sort of thing, really, um, terraces. We lived in the, in the, in the, um, the, the uh, garden city version of public housing, we 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 lived up the up the hill, in public housing, but it was bigger homes than the ones down. But they were separated, and we had big gardens. And my mother used to say, "Why was it that they had a better, stronger community down in the in the older part where the they were only ten years old, but they were the terraces, and we in our better, shinier nineteen twenties, thirties homes." She said, "Just we don't talk to each other as much. We don't live as much on the street." And I, I learnt partly through reading stuff that you've been doing and other people that there's a link between this kind of community vitality, integration, and housing form. And actually, my mother was on onto something. So I, I think your point and her point really are the same, which is essentially that that there is a very good established evidence base about how what outcomes people want and how to get them. And that we we've just managed to create both public and private service, uh, private sector siloed ways of doing stuff which do not deliver these these places, and that's where the biggest work needs to go. My only other point would be about governance. My my clarion call has always been that that unified city governments governance that has a lot more money raising capacity and 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 activity that it that can, it can organise and coordinate at a kind of city precinct level has always been a good thing from my point of view. And Australian cities, cities suffer from, you know, being over-determined by state governments and underpowered councils. So I, I think there's something around there as well. I'm going to end by saying for anybody who really wants to build a better place and understand the implications of what we're doing and how we can improve it to produce better, more equitable public health outcomes, more productive cities, and uh, more climate kind of uh, friendly kind of consequences. I think they should go to Billy Giles Courtney's great work and the RMIT people and all that Lancet series, and they won't go far wrong. So thank you very much for your time, Billy. You have been listening to the third series of the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in the series or listen to the previous series at your favourite podcast provider.